Hello. Welcome to the Second Chapter Readings podcast. Chapter readings are a series of events celebrating the beauty and significance of the written word spoken aloud. Each month, an artist or a group of artists design a literature-inspired reading created from a single theme or idea at the Chapter Arts Centre in Cardiff. The project is developed and curated by Be Aware Productions as part of Chapter's Associate Artist Programme Payload. I'm Emmet Elialabora from Be Aware Productions. The second reading you are going to listen to is designed by Tim Bromage, drawing inspiration from the landscape in word. He has invited three artists to present text that resonates with them. The only guideline is that the text relates in some way to landscape. The artists are A.J. Stockwell, Fern Thomas and Freya Dooley. The event was recorded on May 23, 2018 at the Chapter Art Centre in Cardiff. Here is Tim Bromage making the introduction. So, yeah, thank you very much for coming. This kind of um, reading session is, is sort of meant to be about landscape and landscape and kind of word and literature. So I was sort of thinking about when Lumet very kindly asked me if, I, if I'd like to sort of organise uh, this event, I was thinking about sort of my relationship to landscape and sort of through literature. And I was thinking about kind of the poetry of Ted Hughes, which probably would have been the kind of the biggest kind of impact on me kind of uh, that, that I can really think of in relation to that. Um, primarily, I think, because you kind of, a lot of his writing was about Devon and kind of the landscape there, which is kind of where I come from. So it's very easy to kind of connect through these sorts of ways. And then I was thinking about kind of other artists who I'd heard speak about uh, landscape or just speak generally, and I kind of liked the way that they kind of talked. And uh, so these are the people that I've asked to kind of come and share some literature with you this evening. So, I mean, I can talk behind the donkey, and uh, so I'll stop, I'll stop now, um, and I'm going to pass you over to them, so uh, I think, uh, AJ, you're going to go first? Yes. Did we agree that? We didn't agree that. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to panic there, so I'm going to hand you over to them. Um, we're literally just going to do like a round robin, so um, there's not going to be a gap in between. And then I think if anybody kind of has uh, maybe anything that they want to sort of discuss, or there's anything that comes up which may be pertinent or something that you identify with, maybe we could talk about that a bit at the end, but I think that might be kind of quite interesting to do. Okay, awesome. Um, so today I'm going to read from a book that some of you may have heard of before, that's called The Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd. Um, it's a book that's had quite a significant impact on me and um, certainly resonates a lot with how I find myself within landscape, I suppose. Um, so I'm just going to read from one chapter, not the full chapter even. Just part of it, but it's something that has particular significance to me. Um, so I'm just going to do a straight reading from that. This chapter is titled The Senses. Having disciplined mind and body to quiescence, I must discipline them also to activity. The senses must be used. For the ear, the most vital thing that can be listened to here is silence. To bend the ear to silence is to discover how seldom it is there. Always something moves. When the air is quite still, there is always running water, and up here that is a sound one can hardly lose, though in many stony parts of the plateau, one is above the watercourses. But now and then comes an hour when the silent line is still but absolute, and listening to it one slips out of time. Such a silence is not a mere negation of sound. It is like a new element, and if water is still sounding with a low, far-off murmur, it is no more than the last edge of an element we are leaving, 
as the last edge of land hangs over mariner's horizon. Such moments come in mist, or snow, or a summer night, when it is too cool for the clouds of insects to be abroad, or a September dawn. In September dawns I hardly breathe. I am an image in a ball of glass. The world is suspended there, and I in it. Once, on a night of such clear silence, long past midnight, lying awake outside the tent, my eyes on the plateau where an afterwatch of light was lingering, I heard in the stillness a soft and almost imperceptible thud. It was enough to make me turn my head. There, on the tent pole, a tawny owl stared down at me. I could just discern his shape against the sky. I stared back. He turned his head about. Now one eye upon me, now the other, then melted down into the air so silently that had I not been watching him, I could not have known he was gone. To have heard the movement of the midnight owl, that was rare. It was a minor triumph. Birdsong and the noises birds make that are not singing, and the small sounds of their movements, are for the ear to catch. If there is one bird call more than another that for me embodies the spirit of the mountain, it is the cry of the golden plover running in the bare and lonely places. But the ear can listen also to turmoil, gales crashing into the gaff horror with the boom of angry seas. One can hear the air shattering itself upon rock. Cloud bursts batter the earth and roar down the ravines, and thunder reverberates with a prolonged and menacing role in the narrow trough of Loch Eden. Mankind is sated with noise, but up here, this naked, this elemental savagery, this infinitesimal cross-section of sound from the energies that have been at work for eons in the universe, accelerates rather than destroys. Each of the senses is in a way into what the mountain has to give. The palate can taste the wild berries, Flagrant, wild, free-born cranberry, and, most subtle and sweet of all, the avern or cloudberry, a name like a dream. The juicy gold globe melts against the tongue, but who can describe a flavour? The tongue cannot give it back. One must find the berries, golden ripe, to know their taste. So with the scents, all the aromatic and heady fragrances Pine and birch, bog myrtle, the spicy juniper, heather, and the honey sweet orchis, and the clean smell of wild thyme mean nothing at all in words. They are there to be smelled. I am like a dog. Smell excites me. On a hot, moist midsummer day, I have caught a rich, fruity perfume rising from the matted grass, moss, and wild berry bushes that cover so much of the plateau. The earthy smell of moss and the soil itself is best savoured by grubbing. Sometimes the rank smell of deer sails one's nostril, and in the spring the sharp scent of fire. But I in touch have the greatest potency for me. The eye brings infinity into my vision. I am lying on my back, while over me huge cumuli tear past upon a furious gale. But beyond them, very far away, in the remote pure sky, there float pale, exquisite striations of clouds that can hardly be detected. I close one eye and they recede. 
only with both eyes open do they come into sharp enough focus for me to be sure that they are there. So now I know that the mountain makes its own wind. For these pale stray I float almost motionless, while still the gale above my head drives the monstrous cumuli on. It is the eye that discovers the mystery of light. Not only the moon and the stars and the vast splendours of the aurora, but the endless changes that the earth itself undergoes under changing lights. And that again, I perceive, is the mountain's own doing, for its own atmosphere alters the light. Now score and gully take on a gloss, now they shimmer, now they are stark, like a painting without perspective, in which objects are depicted all in one plane and of the same size, they fill the canvas and there is neither foreground nor background. Now there are sky blue curves in the water as it slides over stones, now impenetrable tarry blackness, slightly silvered like tar. The naked birches, if I face the sun, look black, a shining black, fine carved ebony. But if the sun is behind me, it penetrates a red cloud of twigs and picks out vividly the white trunks, as though the cloud of red were, be, were behind the trunks. In a dry air, the hills shrink. They look far off in innocence, but in a moisture-laden air, they charge forward, insistent and enormous, and in mist, they have a nightmare quality. This is, this is not only because I cannot see where I am going, but because a small portion of earth that I do see is isolated from its familiar surroundings, and I do not recognise it. Nothing is so ghostly as mist over snow. On a March day I am climbing into the quarry that holds Loch Dew, the snows have melted from the lower slopes and the burns are turbulent. They can be crossed only on snow bridges, levels of snow down which runs a sagging and eaten line that shows where the water is pouring underneath. Further up, it is all snow, and now the clouds sink down in me. A pale mist that washes out all the landmarks of snow had not, had not already obliterated. Rocks loom out of it, gigantic, monstrous. The lochen below Lochdu seems enormous. The steep climb beyond it towers upwards so giddily into nothingness that I am assailed by fear. This must be the precipice itself that I am climbing. The lochen was the loch. I have passed it and am clambering towards the cliff. I know it can't be true, but the dim white ghostliness out of which stark shapes batter at my brain has overpowered my reason. I can't go further. I scramble downwards and the grey, rather dismal normality below the mist has a glow of comfort. On another misty day, a transparent mist, I saw a peregrine falcon fly out from a precipice. There were the curved and pointed wings, the rapid downbeat of the pinions. Yet I stared incredulous. I was gazing upwards at a fabulous bird. No peregrine could be of such a size. It was only when he stood still in the air before sailing back to the crag that I believed my own eyesight. And it was only then that I understood what Hopkins meant when he wrote, to see the eagle's bulk, bulk rendered in mists, hang of a triple size. Mist, oddly, can also correct the illusions of the eye. A faint mist floating in the line of hills brings out the gradations of height and of distance in what has seemed one hill. There is seen to be near and far. 
In something the same way, the reflection of land in glassy water defines and clarifies its points, so that relative distance and height of a tumble of hills, so deceptive to the eye, are made clear in the law of reflection. The eye has other illusions that depend on one's own position. Lying on my back and looking across the Gavkoru to the scree slopes above Lochanungen, I see them horizontal, just as from immediately below it. The lurcher seems a horizontal plane, with erect rock masses rising from it. One year we pitched our tent below the curve of the hill above Tongru, on the far side from the Cairngorms. We looked out in a field that ran upwards, and above it the whole line of mountains, cut off about the 2,500 feet level. The intervening moor and the forest had vanished. As I lay night after night outside the door of the tent, watching the last light glow upon the plateau, I had an odd sensation of being actually myself up there. My field felt like the same height. I also lay bathed in the afterglow that had gone before from all but the summits. Half closing the eyes can also change the values of what I look upon. A scatter of white flowers and grass looked at through half-closed eyes blaze out with a sharp clarity, as though they had actually risen up out of their background. Such illusions, depending on how the eye is placed and used, drive home the truth that our habitual vision of things is not necessarily right. It is only one of an infinite number, and to glimpse an unfamiliar one, even for a moment, unmakes us, but steadies us again. It's clear but invigorating. It will take a long time to get to the end of the world that behaves like this if I do no more than turn around on my side or my back. Other delights the eye can catch. Quick moments that pass and are gone forever. Spray blown like smoke from a mountain loch in a gale. A green gleam of the snow where I know my loch lies, caught before I can see the water itself. Loch Haven, glimpsed on a rainy day from the side of the rocky burn above it as deep as in green as Lothamon itself. A rainbow wavering and flickering, formed of a small shower blown by a furious wind, the air quivering above the sun-filled hollows of drowsy summer afternoons. A double rainbow, dark sky in between, arched over the river, its reflection stretching from bank to bank. How can I number the worlds to which the eye gives me entry? The world of light, of colour, of shape, of shadow, of mathematical precision in the snowflake, the ice formation, the quartz crystal, the patterns of stephen and petal, the rhythm and the fluid curve and plunging line of the mountain faces. Why some blocks of stone, hacked into violent and tortured shapes, should so finely tranquilise the mind, I do not know. Perhaps the eye imposes its own rhythm on what is only a confusion. One has to look creatively to see this mass of rock is more than jag and pinnacle as beauty. Else why did men for so many centuries think mountains repulsive? A certain kind of consciousness interacts with the mountain forms to create this sense of beauty. Yet the forms must be there for the eye to see. And forms of a certain distinction, mere dollops won't do. It is, as with all creation, matter impregnated with mind. But the reluctant issue is a living spirit. A glow in consciousness that perishes when the glow is dead. It is something snatched from non-being, that shadow which creeps in us continuously and can be held off by a continuous creative act.
soul, simply to look on anything, such as a mountain, with a love that penetrates to its essence, is to widen the domain of being in the vastness of non-being. So pliable a medium, a time not very long, a transparency cause, a conveyance of rupture, a subtle transport, scant and rare, deep in the opulent morning, blissful regions, hard and slender, scarce and scant, quotidian and temperate. Begin afresh in the realms of the atmosphere that encompasses the solid earth the terraqueous globe that soars and sings, elevated and flimsy, bright and hot, flesh and hue. Our skies are inventions, durations, discoveries, quotas, forgeries, fine and grand, fine and grand, fresh and bright, heavenly and bright. The day pours out space, a light red luminous, bright and fresh, bright and oft, bright and fresh, sparkling and wet. Clamour and tint. We range the spacious fields, a battlement trick and fast, bright and silver, ribbons and failings, to and fro, fine and grand. The sky is complicated and flawed, and we're at there in it, floating near the apricot frill, the bias swoop, near the sullen, bloated part that dissolves to silver, the next instant bronze, but nothing that meaningful, a breach of greeny blue, a syllable. Roll across the swathe of fleece laid out, the fraying rope, the copper beach behind the aluminium catapa that has saved the entire spring for this flight. The tops of these are part of the sky, the light wind flipping up the white undersides of leaves, heaven afresh, the brushed part behind, the tumbling. So to the heavenly rustling. Just stiff with ambition, we range the spacious trees in earnest desire, sure and dear, brisk and west streaky and massed, changing and appearing first and last. This was made from Europe, formed from Europe, rant and raw, fine and grand, fresh and bright, crested and turbid, silver and bright. This was spoken as it came to us, to celebrate intent, distinct and designed, sure and dear, fully designed, dear, afresh, so free to the showing. What we praise, we believe, we fully believe, very fine, belief thin and pure and clear to the title, very beautiful, belief lovely and elegant and fair for the footing, very brisk, belief lively and quickly and strong by the bursting, very bright, belief clear and witty and famous in impulse, very stormy, belief violent and open and raging from privation, very fine, belief intransigent after pursuit, very hot, believed lustful, and eager and curious before beauty, very bright, belief intending afresh, so calmly and clearly, just stiff with leaf, sure and dear, and appearing and last, with lust clear and scarce, and appearing and last and afresh. 
Um, and second, they have some support. The second um, is Daniela um, Cascada. <clears throat> so it's just like a short part from the chapter of her book where she's kind of collecting her experiences with listening and trying to write the sound. Enscape Voices. One. Golden leaves gleam, dishevelled against a cloudy sky. There is still something raw and aching about these clouds, although they are vanishing. The entire scene seems covered by a soaked, damp veil. Above and below, and in the distance, and in the forefront, everything is still wet with rain, and again it starts shimmering. Desperate vibrations scrape the silence. What, where lies the spirit of this place? Surely it is rooted within its history, in the shape of these trees and in stories passed on from people to people. It also lies in the flora and the fauna, in the weather and in the seasons. In a specific season, at a specific time, the spirit of this place unveils to me, as I hear nuances in its sounds and dig into its stories and into its words. For some time soon after the storm, everything seems quiet. Silence, humid, fruitless. All the sounds seem to be sleeping or afraid to wake out. Then they reappear, tiny needles weaving a fabric of stillness to unfold the arabesques of the songs of Hupo, Chapinch, Tatildov. I hear a voice, or is it the wind blowing some muffled verses across the branches? It isn't of May, this impure air, that darkens the foreigner's dark garden even more. At twilight, the nightingale will darken this foreigner's dark garden through the thick throbbings of her trembling throat. <coughs> Enchanted and enchained by the pleasure of a song, soon the cicadas will, be, will start buzzing again. Two. I want to tell you the song. It is entitled Lamento per la morte di Pasolini, Lament for the Death of Pasolini, and it follows the structure of a traditional extra-liturgical religious ballad from Central Italy, the, the Orazione di San Donato, Prayer of Saint Donatus. It was written in December 1975, after Pasolini's death by an Italian singer called Giovanna Marini. It begins like this. I lost all my strength. I lost my ability. I lost all my strength and my ability at some point about three years ago. Call me a writer of sound. A writer of it soaring through the air, leaking into fabrics of words, haunting places and recollections, inhabiting visions and books. At some point about three years ago, I felt I'd lost all my strength and my ability. I no longer could see a consistent picture in all I'd done and written over the previous 10 years. What had appeared until then like a congress body of work crumbled in a myriad of scattered pieces that I knew I had to stitch together again. I lost all my strength and my ability, and as I write these pages, I go back to my old notebooks. As I read, as I listen, and as I write, I'm engulfed in an assonant riddle. It hovers between chisonna, in Italian meaning both who am I and who are they, and chisonna, whom do I sound, voicing the oral universe where my research moves. Many questions, infested by many who. 
These, major, these pages swarm with the voices of those questions. And when I say I, it is in fact they. My archive of voices, of words, of sounds, outlining the landscape in which I move. This story is shaped by my collection, and through my recollections of books, music, sounds, songs, of encounters with books, music, sounds, and songs. I inhabit my landscape of readings and of listening moments at times as a guest, at times as a stranger, at times as a parasite, at times as a ghost. I go for a walk around my favourite places of listening. I look for another way of understanding and of stitching those broken pieces together until I reach the edge of an abyss. This is not the outpouring of an autobiographical image. It is an image distorted, reiterated, projected, reinvented, and echoed into clusters of words. And not even just one image, but clouds of them, attached to the same landscape. It has to do with remembering and returning, today and every other day, with the fixed rhythmic gestures that move my listening, my reading, and my writing, where the formulaic quality of certain recurring images outlines the limits within, within which I can say I again. Um, so the next text is also from the Wagner by Mr. Robertson, so the same book as the first one. Um, this is Tuesday. <laughs> Days heap upon us, all plain, all clouds except a narrow opening at the top of the sky, all cloudy except a narrow opening at the bottom of the sky with ever smaller. All cloudy except a narrow opening at the bottom of the sky. All cloudy except a narrow opening at the top of the sky. All cloudy, all cloudy, all cloudy. Except one large opening with others smaller, and once in the clouds. Days heap upon us. Where is our anger? And the shades darker than the plain part, and darker at the top than the bottom, but darker at the bottom than the top. Days heap upon us. Where is Tebos? But darker at the bottom than the top, days heap upon us. Where is Christine? Broken on the word culture. But darker at the bottom than the top, days heap upon us. Where is Valerie? Pulling the hard air into her lung. The life crumbles open, but darker at the bottom than the top, days heap upon us. Where is Patty? And learning each thing. Red sky crumbles open. This is the only way to expand the heart, but darker at the top than the bottom, days heap upon us. Where is Shulaman? Abolishing the word love. The radical wing crumbles open, the scorn is not anticipated. We have given our surface, darker at the top than the bottom, except one large opening with others smaller. Except one large opening with others smaller. Gradually, days heap upon us. Where is Patricia? In the dream of obedience and authority, the genitalia crumble open. It is only ever a flickering. We never worshipped grief. It has been stuccoed over. Half cloud, half plain, half cloud, half plain, half plain. <clears throat> one of the plain parts and one of the clouds. Days heap upon us. Where is Jane? Looking for food. Hunger crumbles open. All this is built on her loveliness. We have fallen into a category. Love subsidised our descent. Streaky clouds at the bottom of the sky. Days heap upon us. Where is Mary? 
the extreme brevity of the history of clarity. Rage crumbles open. It felt like a dense fog. What is fact is not necessarily human. Memory anticipates. Authority flows into us like a gel. We cross the border to confront the ideal. Streaky cloudy at the top of the sky, days heat upon us. Where is grace? Spent in sadness, the underground crumbles open. There is no transgression possible. We publicly mobilise the horror of our emotion. It is a phalanx. The clouds darker than the plain or the blue part, and darker at the top than the bottom, days heap upon us. Where is Gloria, pushing down laughter? Utopia crumbles open. It is an emotion similar to animals sporting. We won't plagiarise shame. Like this, we solve itself. The clouds darker than the plain part and darker at the top than the bottom. The clouds darker than the plain part and darker at the top than the bottom. The clouds lighter than the plain part and darker at the top than the bottom. The clouds lighter than the plain part and darker at the bottom than the top. The clouds lighter than the plain part and darker at the top than the bottom. The light of the clouds lighter and the darks darker than the plain part and darker at the top than the bottom. The same as the last, but darker at the bottom than the top. The same as the last, but darker at the bottom than the top. Days heap upon us, where is Violet? Walking without flinching, doubt crumbles open. It is not a value, but a disappearance. We come upon the city in our body, the same as the last. The same as the last, the same as the last. The tent breaks over in the plain part and twice in the clouds. Days heap upon us. Where is Emily? Out in all weather, dignity crumbles open. There is not even a utopia. We would have to mention all the possible causes of her death. The tent works over the openings and twice in the clouds. Days heap upon us. Where is Olympe going without rest? The polis crumbles open. There is no difference than slow war. The tint twice in the openings and once in the clouds. Days heap upon us. Where is Michelle? Homesick for anger. Midnight crumbles open. The tint twice in the openings. The tint twice over. Days heap upon us. Where is Bernadine? At description. The tint twice over. Days heap upon us. Where is Kathleen? The tint twice. The clouds darker than the plain part and darker at the top than the bottom. The clouds lighter than the plain part and darker at the top than the bottom. The lights of the cloud lighter, the others smaller, the same as the last. The same as the last. The tint twice in the openings and once in the clouds. Days heap upon us. The tint twice over. Days heap upon us. With others smaller. With others smaller. Um, and I just got one very short last thing, um, which is a poem uh, by Andy Berry. Um, and this book isn't really about landscape, it's about grief, but yeah, um, the last poem is uh, so it's called Canopy. The life was inside. The branches trembled over the glass as if to apologise, then they thumped and they came in. And the trees shook everything off until they were bare and clean. They held on to the ground with their long feet and then into the gale and back again. This was their way with the wind. They flung us down and flailed above us with their visions and their pale tree light. I think they were telling us to survive. That's what a leaf feels like anyway. We lay under their great survive display and they tattooed us with light. They got inside us and made us speak. I said my first word in their language, canopy. I was crying and it felt like I was feeding. 
be my mother when I said to the trees in the language of trees which can't be transcribed. And they shook their hair back and they bent low with their many arms and they looked into my eyes as only trees can look into the eyes of a person. They touched me with the rain on their fingers till I was all droplets, till I was a mist and they said they would. Four years ago, I was asked to memorise a poem. It was to be shared with a group of people on a week-long course I was attending in Dartington. Any poem that we wanted to share, they said, just had to be committed to memory. The weeks leading up to the course, I selected my poem and began to memorise it, finding my way across the terrain, the words in their order. I had not learned something off by heart since childhood. I became interested in what it meant to learn something in this way, to carry it with you, to keep it inside. There was something about bringing a particular kind of consciousness to this poem, keeping it active and flowing through my body. I would whisper it to myself as I walked along the road or waited for a train. It could be likened to a mantra or a chant, where its repetition builds energy, force, intention. I thought about the work of Japanese scientist Masaru Emoto, who did studies on the effects of water, effects of words on water crystals. What effect might this poem have on my organs, on the water content of my body? A couple of years previous to this, I'd fallen in love with the lion who sits in the great court of the British Museum. The Lion of Knidos, or a kind of lion made from the same stone that built the Parthenon, guarded an ancient tomb and then was taken from where he lay to London in the mid-1850s. I wondered about what he witnessed on his journey and what happened to the two glass orbs that were once his eyes. This falling in love led me to exploring my relationship with Lion, building on my slow dialogue with the menagerie of either dead or imagined beings. What is its myth? What is its meaning? I would sometimes walk through the city of Oxford imagining a lion walking beside me. It took a lot of concentration to hold the image there whilst walking. I wanted to see how walking with an imagined lion would change my experience of moving through a place. It was something about engaging one's will. I would try to imagine the sound of the paws padding on the pavement, and then I would look, and he was gone. Similarly, I remember one night trying to hold the image of the moon in my mind whilst I walked home, to only think of the moon to be completely present with this image within, but too quickly it faded. And so when I arrived at Dartington for the course along with 24 other people, holding my boy inside, we were invited to find a moment during the week when we were all gathered to suddenly share our chosen poem. And so as the week progressed, my peers found their right moment and began to speak out their memorised verses as we crossed rivers, sat round fires and looked out to see the side grazing sheep. But I, never being very good at knowing when to speak, 
because the gaps are often for listening or digesting or allowing. I cannot bring up the words. The whole week I carried that poem around with me. My thoughts always partly picturing the poet's story unfolding in the dark. As I tried to work out, is this the moment now? My sad party trick, my poem loomed off my heart, which had maybe become part of a molecular structure, and I never let it out. At this point, Fern stopped reading from the paper and read the poem so from memory. Traveling through the dark by William E. Stafford. Traveling through the dark, I found a deer dead on the edge of the Wilson River Road. It's usually best to roll them into the canyon. That road is narrow. To swim might make more dead. By glow of the taillight, I stumbled back in the car and stood by the heap. A doe, a recent killing. She had stiffened already almost cold. I dragged her off. She was large in the belly. My fingers touching her side brought me the reason. Her side was warm. Her fawn lay there waiting. Alive, still, never to be born. Beside that mountain road, I hesitated. The car aimed ahead its lowered parking lights. Under the hood purred the steady engine. I stood in the glare of the warm exhaust turning red. Around our group, I could hear the wilderness listen. I thought hard for us all, my only swerving, then pushed her over the edge into the river. This was the second in our series of chapter readings podcasts. Please subscribe to our channel.